0: Maybe most of you probably don't think about this, but maybe you've wondered from time to time um, what you would do if you were confronted with a situation where you had to either recant your faith or uh, die because of your faith. What would you do in that situation? And obviously, I don't think anyone in this room has faced that circumstance before, and hopefully none of us will have to face that circumstance at any point in our lives. But I've thought about that from time to time, you know, you'll see something on, uh, on TV, the guys that are executed over in the Middle East, um, you know, as someone like ISIS or whatever, and you, you know, you, I tend to put myself in that circumstance and go, man, what would I do? How would I respond to that? What, in that actual moment where I had to make that decision, what would I say and what would I do? Well, there was a guy in the early 1500s, so the 16th century, named Thomas Cranmer who actually faced that situation twice in his life. He lived in the early 1500s, which if you know anything about church history, the early 1500s was a very volatile time. It was the time of the Protestant Reformation. All of Europe was in an upheaval over uh, the, the changes that were coming socially, politically, and certainly doctrinally, and all of those were sort of mashed together in one big social change that was going on. And the the choice at that time between being a Catholic and a Protestant was really a significant choice, and you could end up losing your head if you were on the wrong side of that, depending on who was in power in your particular country at that time. Cranmer was raised a Catholic in England, okay, but the Protestant Reformation came to England after it had sort of gone through Germany and Switzerland and all that, and it came over to England a little bit later than the rest of Europe, and he converted to Protestantism uh, when the, the Reformation came there, and he rose through the ranks and became the top churchman in England. And at that time, the king of England, Edward VI, I know we're all up to date on our British monarchy, the flow of that and everything. I get it. Um, But Edward VI was the king, and the thing you need to know about Edward VI is that he was a very strong Protestant king. And so Cranmer was the top churchman in a Protestant government, and that was a really good situation to be in. Well, he was able to teach the Bible. Uh, He was able to have English Bibles translated, which was a big deal. Uh, He taught Protestant doctrine, he wrote the Book of Common Prayer, which maybe some of you have have used that before, a very valuable resource there. Um, Everything was going swimmingly for him during this time, but people's health wasn't all that good, and Edward VI died suddenly, and Edward's older sister, Mary, became the queen in England. Well, Mary was a very, very committed Catholic, and She had been shunned and even declared illegitimate by Protestants when Edward, her brother, had been in charge, and so she obviously held a grudge against Protestants, and particularly those who were in key positions in the church in England, and so she started to change everything back to Catholicism and started to execute Protestant churchmen. I'm sure you've heard of Mary before. Um, If... You know, if you have any uh, understanding of church history, have read much about church history, uh, Bloody Mary was her nickname because of the number of people that she put to death during her reign. Uh, many of the stories are included in Fox's Book of Martyrs. Um, you can read about those. Uh, I, have a, I have a little, a neat little book uh, on five English reformers, and Cranmer's story is in that book, Under Mary's Reign. But when she came in, in charge, she didn't immediately execute Thomas Cranmer. What she did was she tucked him away in prison and then sent Roman Catholic apologist to his prison cell every day for three years to try to convert him back to Catholicism. I mean, it's a pretty big win if you can convert the top churchman, the top Protestant churchman back to Catholicism. And so they worked on him, they worked on him, and eventually they convinced him to sign papers recanting his Protestant faith. Well, Mary disliked him so much that even though he'd signed these papers, she said, Yeah, I'm going to execute you anyway. <laughs> Bummer, right? <laughs> so, on the day that they bring him out to the place of execution, it would have been a very public thing during that time. They bring him out to the place of execution, they're going to burn him at the stake, and <laughs> They let him preach to the crowd and address the crowd because they want him to explain how he has recanted his faith, he's an influential guy, and they want him to explain how he's converted back to Catholicism. Well, unfortunately for Mary, Thomas took the opportunity, the public platform that he had, and he preached the gospel to them, repented of all his sins, and said that his greatest sin was denying the Protestant gospel that he had been preaching. Well, when they heard this and heard him get going, they rushed him over to the stake to burn him there. And what's interesting is when Thomas approached the stake and the fire was going, he thrust his right hand, which he'd used to sign those documents, into the fire first. And here's what he said when he did that. As my hand offended writing contrary to my heart, my hand shall be first to be punished. Pretty dramatic scene there for him. And he died a martyr for his faith. What's interesting with Thomas Cranmer is he had denied the faith at one point, and then he had held firm to the faith at another point when he was put in those those situations and those circumstances where he had that opportunity. Our passage this morning is interesting because it juxtaposes two trials, we're going to call them, two situations where people had the opportunity to recant of their faith or to stand firm. In their faith, to deny the Lord or to stand firm based on who He is. And what we're going to see this morning in this passage is two very different responses to those trials. And we're going to learn about the gospel from these different responses. So if you're not there yet, open up to Mark 14, verse 53. We're going to go all the way to the end of the chapter in verse 72 this morning. So as we get to verse 53, you'll remember probably, hopefully, from last week that Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. This huge crowd of soldiers has come with Judas, and they've arrested him and seized him. His disciples have run off. Everyone has deserted him. And so now he's alone under the guard of this huge group of armed men. So what are they going to do with him? Look at verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. So the high priest was the most powerful religious figure in the nation of Israel at this time. And he also had quite a bit of political authority and influence as well. So they take Jesus to the house, which would have been a large house, of the high priest. But the high priest isn't the only one there. Continue reading in verse 53. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. So it's in the middle of the night. And these are the very people that make up the Sanhedrin. These are the people that we've been reading about who've conspired and colluded with Judas in order to capture Jesus. And so they're all there. They gather in the middle of the night so that they can question Jesus about what he's been teaching and doing and who he is. And so verse 53 tells us that this is going on inside the house of the high priest. There was probably a, an outer courtyard, very different from our houses today, but there was probably an outer courtyard, very big, that had a wall around it. He's a very wealthy guy. And his, this big room that they're meeting in uh, was probably on the second floor of the house up. Uh, and so they brought him in there and the Sanhedrin were there waiting for him. The high priest was there waiting for him. And they're going to question him and have this trial going on up there. But while that's taking place upstairs, Mark wants us to understand that there's another trial going on in the courtyard below, and it's going on at the same time. Look at verse 54. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. And so Mark is giving us the setting here, and he wants you to understand that both of these trials, both of these Times of questioning are happening at the same moment, the same time, one upstairs, one downstairs. Jesus is upstairs with the Sanhedrin, the high priest. Peter is below in the courtyard with the soldiers and he's warming himself at the fire. Now Mark intentionally writes this story this way. It's actually written differently in Luke if you go and read it. But when you, re- when you read it here in Mark, he goes back and forth. He starts with Jesus, then he goes to Peter, then he goes back to Jesus, then he goes back to Peter. And he does this because he wants us to interpret these two stories together. We think of these simultaneously happening at the same time and they're teaching us a message through reading both of them together. What Mark wants us to do is he wants to put he wants us to see Peter and Jesus in contrast to one another. How they respond, how they're questioned, everything that happens in these two trials He wants us to see them in contrast to one another. And so here's what we're gonna see today as these two scenes play out. Two gospel declarations from two trials that show us our need of grace. So two gospel declarations or gospel truths from two trials that show us our need for grace. All right, the first one of these, oh, there's Thomas Cramner, I forgot to show you him. Good looking fellow there. Two gospel declarations from two trials. First of all, the first gospel declaration, gospel truth that we're learning from these two trials is the enthronement of Jesus as Lord. And this is in verses 55 through 65. So Mark has set the scene in verses 53 and 54, and now he turns to the trial that's going on upstairs before the Sanhedrin and the high priest. And when he turns to this trial... If you just read this too casually, you miss the shocking nature of what he says next and the admission that he makes about what's going on in this trial, okay? Look at verse 55. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Now, I'm no lawyer, nor do I have a desire to be a lawyer. I appreciate lawyers, but I don't aspire to be one. However... I know enough about justice and the legal system that it's not supposed to work this way. You don't come up with a sentence and then try to find a crime that matches the sentence that you want to give to a person. And that's exactly what's going on here. They're starting with the sentence. They want to put him to death. Okay, now we want to put him to death. We got to find something that will allow us to put him to death. It's a little like buying a wedding dress, reserving a caterer for the reception, and then going and looking for a man. It's not supposed to work that way. That's backwards, all right? And we know this is what they're doing because of what Mark says here and because of what he says back in chapter 14 and verse 1. They were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. They've had this on their radar for quite a while, and they finally got him in their presence and they're working on making this happen. But they can't find any witnesses. That's what's amazing about this. They find none. Nobody has anything bad to say about Jesus. Nobody can pin anything on him. And that has significant implications for how we understand his perfection and his sinlessness and how he can be the atoning sacrifice that we need. They're not able to find anything to pin on him. So, they resort to people just making stuff up. (laughs) I mean, literally, that's what they do. Look at verse 56. For many bore false witness against him. But even that doesn't work very well. The rest of verse 56, but their testimony did not agree. So, they've got people making up lies, but they can't get everybody on the same page to tell the same lies. According to the Old Testament, you had to have two to three witnesses who had corroborating testimony, and there's some veneer of following that here because they are the most important religious leaders in Israel. So they at least want to give credence to the Old Testament. But they can't come up with people who have evidence and, and testimony that matches. And what's amazing here is that bearing false witness is a violation of the ninth commandment. Shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And they're promoting that here. And it's not going well. They can't find anybody. So now they change tactics and they try to pin their hopes on a specific line of evidence. Look at verses 57 and 58. And some stood up and bore false witness against him saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Now this is interesting. We don't have any statements like this recorded by Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, but clearly in the other gospels, Jesus does say something like this. And certainly in the Gospel of Mark, we do have Mark 13, where he predicts the destruction of the temple. And so maybe people had gotten wind of that conversation with his disciples, and they were presenting it there as him saying he was going to destroy the temple. Now Mark calls this a false witness, Not because Jesus didn't say these things, because he did say something like this in his life and in his ministry, but because they completely misunderstand what he's saying and they're trying to twist his words and make him say something that he didn't. And what's interesting here too is that while this is a false testimony, this actually kind of sticks to Jesus and this becomes part of what people will uh, say to him and mock him with when he's on the cross, if you were to look over at Mark 15, verse 29 and 30, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And so there's some mockery here that is based on this, this false testimony. This, this sort of sticks in some way, even though it's not actually the, what Jesus intended by it. Regardless of what happens with that particular line of evidence, they don't ultimately get the verdict and the penalty they're looking for with this because they're bearing false testimony here. Look at verse 59. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. So they're trying all of these things to try to get to the point where they can give him a sentence of death and nothing is working. You can imagine the turmoil as all of this is happening in this room with these powerful religious leaders there in the middle of night, the night desperate to pin something on him. And it's at this point that the trial of Jesus takes a very dramatic turn. After repeated attempts to come up with something that he has done wrong, some word that he said that is inappropriate and violates the law, the high priest takes charge of the situation and steps pretty forcefully into the center of the room right in front of Jesus and begins to personally question Jesus. And I imagine when this happened that everyone else probably would have gotten silent. This is the main guy, and now he's going to question him personally. Everything has sort of come to a climax here in this interaction. Look at verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Now, this just makes it clear. Jesus hasn't been responding to any of this. This whole trial has been going on. This charade has been happening. And Jesus has been standing there, not defending himself, looking quietly on. And he continues to stand quietly And it makes sense, right? Because if if all of this is happening and they're bearing false witness against you and they're making stuff up and they're twisting your words to what they aren't and nobody can agree on anything, why why would you need to say anything to exonerate yourself? You don't need to. You just stand there quietly and let them burn the house down around you. I mean, so Jesus doesn't say anything at all and it's not gonna help if he does say anything. Anything he does say is gonna be used against him. Look at the, the beginning of verse 61, but he remained silent even to the high priest and made no answer. And that's interesting because it reminds us of Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now, it's not the same wording that Mark uses as is Isaiah 53, but you can see over this series how many times we've referenced Isaiah 53. It's because that passage, I think, has formed the background of Mark's understanding of Jesus's death and what happens here at the end of his life. And so he's interpreting all of it and trying to show us how all that happens to Jesus is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53. And I think this is one of those examples as well. So because the high priest can't get anything out of Jesus, how frustrating would that be? You're the most powerful guy, religiously speaking, in Israel. This guy won't say anything. And the high priest is not a dumb guy. And so he steps closer, probably gets right in Jesus's face and asks him the question that he needs to ask him. Everything has been building to this. Verse 61, again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed. Now, this question has two parts. He asks him if he is the Messiah, the Christ, and he asks him if he's the son of God. And he says the son of the blessed because the Jews wouldn't speak God's name out loud publicly, certainly. And so he calls God the son of, son of the blessed here. That's why he phrases it that way. So why does he ask this question? Well, it actually makes a lot of sense Based on what they've just said about Jesus and the temple. If you think about this whole section, all the way back to chapter 11, everything has been about the authority of Jesus. And even that question about the temple has really been about his authority. Do you actually, this guy said he had the authority to destroy the temple. What kind of a person says they have that kind of authority? And so the high priest is asking him this here because he wants to know, do you really think you're the Messiah, that you have the authority of the deliverer, and do you think you have the authority that will associate you with God as the son of the blessed one? Think about Jesus' ministry. I mean, this, this makes sense. The high priest would have heard about a lot of the things Jesus was doing and that people claim that he was doing. He's claimed to forgive sins. It's a certain kind of authority, isn't it? He's healed the sick. He's cast out demons. He's fed the masses with a small amount of bread and fish. Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, and it was a symbolic claim to messianic authority when he did that. He debated with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders in the temple, and consistently showed them that their understanding of the Old Testament scriptures was lacking, and that he had the authority to rightly interpret those scriptures. And so all of these acts that Jesus had done, he's not saying, I am the Messiah, but he's telling everyone, look, this is who I am based on all of these things that I've done. He's hinting at it. He's indirectly indicating that that's who he is. And so the high priest knew his Old Testament scriptures, and he knew what Jesus was doing, and so he wants to know, is this what you're saying? This is this who you're saying you are. Jesus' actions have certainly demonstrated that he believes he is the Messiah. But he also asked the second part of the question, are you the son of God or the son of the blessed one? And what's interesting about that is remember in Mark 12, Jesus had told that parable about the vineyard owner who ultimately sent his beloved son back to the vineyard and the temporary tenants had beat him up and had killed him, thrown his body over the wall. And the religious leaders knew when he told that that they were speaking against them. And they probably also knew what he was claiming for himself when he told that parable. And so the high priest here asks him, are you claiming to be the son of God? And so he's trying to bring all of that out into the open. And it really is a nice summary of who Jesus has claimed to be. And so in many ways, everything in the book of Mark has been leading us up to this point. Jesus has consistently told his disciples and others, don't speak publicly about who I am. Be silent about it. When he heals someone, he says, don't tell anyone what has been done for you. There's been this sort of theme of silence throughout the book. And he hasn't really made any overt claims. And even when he answers his disciples, don't tell anyone. But now everything gets put out in the open in dramatic fashion. Look at verse 62. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, there's so much in this answer. We could probably spend a couple of hours here understanding what Jesus is saying here. But I want to try to summarize this and get to the heart of what he's going after here. Jesus puts two Old Testament passages together in his answer. Psalm 110 you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power in Daniel chapter 7 and coming with the clouds of heaven. Let me show you those texts. Psalm 110, the Lord says, this is David writing, the Lord says to my Lord. So David understands that there's one coming in his line who will be more significant than he is. Sit at my right hand, the place of power and authority and enthronement until I make your enemies your footstool. Both of these Old Testament passages, to get to the heart of this, they're anticipating the enthronement of God's agent of redemption, the Messiah. These are kingly passages talking about his authority and the time when he will be enthroned and have dominion and reign over all. You can see the kingdom language in both. And what Jesus is saying in the presence of the Sanhedrin here. Is that all of Israel's hopes and dreams and expectations and all of God's promises for redemption and freedom? All of those are coming to fulfillment in the person described in Psalm 110 and Daniel 7, and that's me. But what's interesting here, too, is that it's not just about the enthronement of the Messiah and the dominion that he will have. His dominion comes by crushing his enemies. You could see that back in Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And his dominion will be over all peoples in all nations. And so when he says this here, he's hinting to the religious leaders Since you are opposed to me, you're actually opposed to God because I'm his agent of redemption. I'm the Messiah and I will reign over all. And if you're opposed to me, you can be opposed to him too. Now, these type of claims cannot be made by a mere human being. Daniel chapter 7 is not describing a mere human political Messiah. And perhaps that's what the high priest was wanting to get at there. No human being can claim the authority to sit at God's right hand and to be presented before God as his equal and receive a kingdom that won't pass away. No one can claim that unless you're more than a mere human being. So this is quite a dramatic statement here. And the response is exactly what you would expect, right? Look at verse 63. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. They don't even pause to consider, based on everything that he's done, if what he's claiming here is actually true. They don't even give that a a second thought. They accuse him of blasphemy. And the accusation or the, the formal charge of blasphemy here is not even just that he quoted these passages, although that's part of it. It's everything that he's done that has culminated in quoting these passages. It's the claim to be able to forgive sins. It's the way he entered Jerusalem. It's the culmination of his life's teaching and actions that bring about this charge because of how he understands his role and who he is. Now when they give him this charge of blasphemy, the typical Jewish response to that would be to take him out and to stone him immediately. But they don't do that because they can't do that. They don't have the authority to be able to do that. And so they, they say here, he's deserving of death, but that's why they have to take him before Pilate in chapter 15, because they can't actually carry out a capital capital punishment on someone here because they're under Roman occupation. And that must have burned them up that they couldn't do that, that they lacked that authority. And they respond even further here in verse 65. They're so angry that they respond like common criminals. Look at verse 65. Some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. They're so angry here that they start to spit on him and mock him and hit him. They believe the Messiah had some sort of extra human knowledge and ability, and so they call on him to prophesy. They're hitting him. And what's, what's so ironic here, it's just deliciously ironic in some ways, right, is they're calling on him to prophesy and tell the future. Well, the very actions that they're doing to him, he had already prophesied in chapter 10. He had already said, they're going to mock me and spit on me. And I'm going to be handed over to them, right? Like Jesus has already prophesied these things and they don't believe he can prophesy. So they're telling him to prophesy. It's amazing. Now this whole trial here reveals to us the gospel declaration that Jesus is the authoritative king. I mean, that's been the teaching all throughout the gospel of Mark, but here we see it expressed incredibly clearly and tied to these key Old Testament passages. Let's think about our own lives just for a moment here before we get to the second trial. When we talk about Jesus being the authoritative king, what that means for you and I day in and day out is that he is our Lord. That's what that word means, Lord Jesus. We use it so frequently and so much that we lose our understanding of what it means for Jesus to be Lord, but this is what it means. It means he is the one that has dominion over everything. He's the one the gospels present as the Lord, the King over all. And unless you and I grasp that, we don't really understand the gospel. The gospel tells us that Jesus is the king, that he is the Lord. And to believe that he's Lord, practically speaking for you and I, means that he has the authority to rule over my life by his word, by what he's spoken. It means that I submit to him. It means that His word is the defining guide for my life. Everything for faith and practice is submitted to him because he is Lord. I obey him. I trust him. And I'll say this, you cannot be truly saved unless you submit to Jesus Christ as Lord of your life. You acknowledge him as Lord doesn't mean you're perfectly going to obey in every circumstance. But your heart does desire to obey, and you do understand him as Lord. Listen to Romans 10.9. Well, I missed it. It's not up there. Romans 10.9. Let me flip over there because this is an important text for you to hear. Romans 10 and verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is... Lord, and believe in your heart that, she, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. How are you saved? You confess with your mouth that he is Lord. And that's not just saying the words, it's a genuine submission and belief that he is Lord and he is the authority. And the way the gospels present him is the way he truly is. The gospel's not the gospel. Without the enthronement of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of Jesus as the sovereign Lord over all, including my life. We don't really believe the gospel unless we bow to him as Lord. Brings us to our second declaration from this second trial. So we see the enthronement of Jesus as Lord, and then we see the human need of grace. So while all of this has been going on upstairs, This dramatic trial, another trial is going on, a trial of sorts, below in the courtyard. Look at verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. I'm sure you've had this experience before. Um, You see someone maybe out at Target or something, and you're like, I know that guy. I've seen that person before. Where do I know them from? And I think that's probably what happened here. There's a huge crowd of people out in this courtyard. They're warming themselves by the fire. Peter's sitting there trying to get warm. There's a little bit of light reflecting off of his face. And one of the servant girls sees him and goes, I know that guy. And I think what happens, although it doesn't say it clearly, but you'll understand why I think this is the case here in a minute. I think she went over, sat by him and quietly said to him, you, are, you were with the Nazarene, weren't you? I don't think she makes a public declaration because of the way it turns public here in a few moments. So I think this is just her speaking to Peter individually. And Peter is pretty dogmatic in his response. Look at verse 68. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. He's saying, I don't even even understand what you're talking about. I don't get it. And then Notice what he does. He went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. A couple of interesting things there. He doesn't want to hear any more from her, so he tries to get up and move away from her. And he moves further away from the fire, probably out into the darkness a little bit, hoping that no one else will recognize him and the rooster crowed. Now, Jesus had predicted this. So did Peter hear it? Did he think about it? I don't know. I don't know what happened. But the story keeps going, verse 69. And the servant girl saw him, probably a little bit of time elapsed, and began again to say to the bystanders. So this time she starts going, hey, we know that guy. Don't, that guy was with Jesus, right? This man is one of them. And so the circle is broadening out here, and Peter's feeling more and more pressure. Now it's another group of people who are seeing him and recognizing him, and she identifies him. Verse 70, but again, he denied it. Now, this time when he speaks, one of the other gospels indicates that his accent gave him away. I mean, remember, he's from Galilee. He's from the north, fishing community by the Sea of Galilee. These guys are from Jerusalem, probably from other places, and so he would have had a very distinct accent, much like Michigan has a distinct accent, I might say much like Virginia has a distinct accent. You know when someone from Michigan is visiting Virginia and vice versa as well. But his accent probably gave him away here. So everybody knows. Verse 70, but again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them for, they know his accent, you are a Galilean. The only reason you're here is because you're with Jesus. And so this time the pressure is so great, the number of people identifying him and pressing on him is is growing and it's large. And to Peter, it probably seems like it's getting out of control that he does something bold and clear here. Verse 71, but he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. He makes a scene here and he does a couple of things. He actually curses Jesus's name here and swears at him, swear it brings damnation down on him, and he makes an oath. He says something like, may God do this to me if I have any association with Jesus of Nazareth. And he wants to get out of the situation. He wants it to be very clear. He wants to get everyone off his back. Now, if you've ever lost your cool before, gotten really angry, there's a moment where you sort of come to your senses, and it's like things start to become clear again. And my guess is that that moment happened for Peter when the rooster crowed again. Verse 72, and immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. He comes back to his senses. He remembers what Jesus has said just a few hours earlier. And man, his words before Jesus, if everyone else leaves you, I'll die with you, must have been horrifying to him as he thought about those words. And he can't even handle it. Look at the end of verse 72. And he broke down and wept. This is the same word that's used if a loved one passes away unexpectedly and you're, you're trying to, to deal with it. You can't deal with it. This is that word that that Peter has that reaction to this here. He's been so sure of himself, but here in this moment, he clearly understands just how weak and how needy he is. And I think that's an important word for each one of us here, how weak and needy we are as human beings. We talked earlier about how the recognition of Christ's authority and lordship is key to understanding the gospel. But our response to that gospel story I think needs to be a recognition of our own sinfulness and our own weakness and then a turning from that sinfulness to Christ. What what is the difference between Judas's betrayal and denial of Jesus and Peter's? Mark doesn't really flesh it out so much here, although I'll show you something really cool here in a second about what happens to Peter after this. But I think the difference is that Peter wept and came to grips with his sin and turned from his sin to Christ in repentance. Repentance means understanding the weight and severity of my sin, my sinful condition, and it's the other side of faith. The the writer. Luke in Acts tells us over and over again that when the the, the apostles proclaimed the gospel, when the early church was growing and happening, they told people, repent. That was a summary of your response to the gospel. It wasn't just believe, like have this intellectual understanding that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. It was repent of your sins, turn from your sins and turn to him. That's one action of faith but it includes repentance. I'm walking this way and I turn from my sin, but in the turning from my sin, I'm turning and looking to Christ as the only option that I have and what I need more than anything else. Repent and believe. That's what it takes to have saving faith. And I think that's what Peter demonstrates here. And what's really beautiful about this, if you remember back in Mark chapter 14, when Jesus is telling the disciples that they're all going to fall away, remember what he says to them? But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, look all the way to Mark 16 and verse 7. After Jesus has risen from the dead, the angel tells the women here, but go, tell his disciples, and then I think these are two of the most beautiful words in all of scripture, and Peter. He specifically identifies, hey, make sure Peter gets this word. Make sure Peter understands that Jesus has risen from the dead, and everything's going to be okay Make sure Peter understands that despite his weakness and his failure, there is grace that is abounding to him and Jesus is going to meet him at Galilee and he's going to restore him and he's going to use him in a mighty way. That's the beauty of the work of Christ and that's the beauty of the gospel. And I love that picture. Can you imagine how happy Peter must have been when these women got back with that word? The tomb was empty. Jesus is gone. And an angel said to find you. <laughs> That's a beautiful thing. And so these two trials here, they put the authority of Jesus and his lordship on display, his glory, and they put that in sharp contrast to our human need and our human weakness. And when you see the weakness of Peter here and understand our own human weakness, it can drive you to despair or it can drive us to repentance and trust and acknowledging our need for him on an ongoing basis. Martin Luther said that all of the Christian life is one of repentance. And so this is the constant posture of you and I, seeing our sin, turning from our sin and turning to a glorious Christ who has grace that abounds beyond anything we could possibly imagine. That was demonstrated to Peter that can be demonstrated to us as well. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for this picture here of grace that is given to us who are in need, and we are all in need this morning, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your kindness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.